at this point in like the world, the information is out there. We've achieved equity of access. Everyone has access, especially now during the quarantine. You have world-class education at your fingertips. On this episode of Coindesk Live Lockdown Edition, Stephanie Iscata speaks with Brave's Carlos Acevedos about how charity is more important to real-world adoption than the idea of hodling. We join the conversation in progress now. Would you like to kind of break the stereotype of the low-funded, low-resource school? My school, which was the Morris Academy for Collaborative Studies, was led by and still is led by a principal named Matthew Mazarapi. He actually started as the principal. I replaced him as a teacher because when he went to assistant principal, he became a principal. And he worked very diligently and hard to make sure that our students had every resource possible, and we did. So I know that a lot of people understand that students get free lunch and free breakfast every day, but we had a plethora of clubs, after-school clubs, lunch clubs. We had social workers, school psychologists, college tutoring, SAT tutoring. We had every specific resource that we could give, and our students definitely received a lot of support, if not more than I see the suburban districts as well. And there is a distinct effort by the DOE and specifically in the school that I was working to address maybe, let's say, the resource gap and inequality that might come from support. Awesome. In your experience teaching, did you come across students that maybe on their own, I know I I was reading some articles about you and you eventually became known as like the Bitcoin teacher that someone would give or that maybe at the end of graduation, you would give some of your students Bitcoin. How did those conversations start there? So my interest in crypto began in around 2014-ish, and then really kind of exploded when I heard Andreas Antonopoulos on Joe Rogan's podcast, who was one of my companions on my Commute Everyday podcast and audiobooks and YouTube were definitely something that became available now and I took advantage of. And so during the explosion of the last bull market, students saw that during lunch, we would have lunch clubs. And so the reason being is that the school is very large. And so we have a cafeteria where students would go down and it'd be very hot and stuffy down there, very crowded. And so Mm -hmm. teachers were able to kind of have their classrooms as a sanctuary during lunch where students can go and eat their lunch and hang out. And I was also the technology teacher. So they had computers they could use. And during lunch, as my lunch break, they saw that I would be reading articles on Coindesk or any other publication or watching YouTube videos. And they had all heard about Bitcoin because everybody was talking about Bitcoin. <laughs> and so it kind of became a running joke, like, you Acevedo, when you're going to be some Bitcoin, you Acevedo. And I told them, <laughs> like, look, after you graduate, if you graduate, I will give you some crypto. Um, I actually gave them Zcash. So uh, that was the main thing. So the main reason, obviously, being that there's kind of a really distinct conflict of interest clause. Like I can't give anything of value to students, any kind of monetary values that could misconstrued. So it actually happened that after graduation, um, I gave a group of like, because it turned out to be like a crypto club where I started teaching them what I was learning. And so between public key cryptography, wallets, the different types of coins, the different protocols, you know, how everything kind of mixed together. And, you know, I saw a light in their eyes that was absent when I taught Shakespeare to my chagrin. I mean, I, you know, I, I want them to be excited about <laughs> literature, but they're not. What they're excited about is crypto, and so am I. So I tried to leverage that, and I did get, end up giving them Zcash at the end. 
Awesome. I kind of want to focus on that. Do you think that light in their eyes, was it because they saw an opportunity not only to advance technologically, but also to make money, right? Like not to focus on, on the stereotype of underfunded schools, because you mentioned that your school was actually really well resourced. Is that something that you think maybe at, in, in the home, it wasn't often talked about, right? Like money. I, I find it sometimes in our specific communities, you know, we're told go to school, go to college, become a doctor, a lawyer, a banker, and you're set to get a good job. But sometimes these other ways of thinking about money, whether it's stocks or bonds, or, or in this case, in this era, a Bitcoin, aren't often talked about. Did you find your students very receptive to this conversation? Yeah. And I mean, I would say like, especially in those low income communities, money's talked about a lot. What's not talked about is personal finance. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I had many times during lunch where I would explain things that other people will take advantage, like just a credit score, like something as simple as understanding, like when you have a credit card, you have a statement balance and an overall balance. If you pay your statement balance and carry another balance, you don't pay interest on that. They had no idea about that. And I have spent a lot of time helping students who are over 18, open up a bank account on the popular online banks like Ally. And I'd have to help them through the actual application. Personal finance overall isn't really discussed, but at the same point, you need a surplus of money to actually talk about finance and invest. And these were living well below the poverty line. I mean, I think the average income of the school where I was working was, you know, less than I think $25,000 or $30,000 on a family of four. So it was well, well below the poverty line. It's awesome that you as a teacher took that initiative to instill a sense of personal finance and that knowledge in your students to in your family growing up, was that something that was discussed? Yes, definitely. My parents grew up in the Bronx. They both took different paths and um, were professionals. My father worked for the MTA um, in marketing. and My mother was a sales professional for a medical device company. As I was growing up, I really understood and was told what money was, how to work with it, how to invest, what to invest in, and just seeing overall comparisons to how my parents were living versus others, you know, it's very stumbling me very early to live well below your means. And I mean, well below your means, like, you know, even if you can afford a Mercedes, drive a Ford. My parents never articulated it such. It's more the saving of capital and establishing capital. It was like the trajectory of your professional life. And that really um, spoke to me for Bitcoin and definitely spoke to me in the way that I approach money now. Awesome. So you mentioned you had this lunch club at school. Uh, A lot of kids became interested in it. You kept it going. And then I found out or read that in 2008, while you were still teaching, you launched the Crypto Community Project. Can you tell me a little bit more about that initiative and why, as the the New Yorker magazine put it, you went on a crusade to help the unbanked? So you go down the rabbit hole in crypto. You know, if you're anyone who's participating here knows, because if you know about this, you're in the space, you know about it. And there's these platitudes that are just always kind of expressed about banking the unbanked and talking about some of these far-flung places like in Southeast Asia or Latin America. One thing that has always stuck with me throughout my time, um, I've been consistently journaling for about 20 years now. And so I would actually get to work early just to center myself. I would like write my page and, you know, there's power and articulated thought. And I would be sitting there and I would just be thinking and writing and I would look out the window and realize Nothing about this about crypto is far flung. I mean, we're in the Bronx. We're in the South Bronx. Like there are places in the Bronx that are affluent. There are places in the Bronx that are solidly middle class. But I was in the South South Bronx. I mean, this is the boogie down. This was, you know, <laughs> right near Fort Apache. This was the poster child of 
urban neglect in the 1970s and 80s. When I grew up there, going there every week to visit my grandparents, it really struck me at one point. And again, Andreas Antonopoulos was my main kind of entryway and it's overall like universal basic finance, right? Mm -hmm. And so this idea of access with crypto, and then it, it struck me, you know, if you're familiar with New York, I used to drive commute to work, taking about 45 minutes. And I would get off the exit from the highway and drive about four miles to my school from the highway. And I would not see one bank branch. So someone who lives in New York City, if you compare that with Manhattan, where there is a Chase or any other bank branch on every single block along yeah. with the Dwayne Reed, you suddenly realize like, oh, hmm, okay. And then you see suddenly, okay, it's more, why would banks have branches there? The overhead that exists with that would be difficult to justify with the local population. But then crypto, in addition to the online banks that I had also mentioned before, does offer access in a way that wasn't available before. So Crypto the Community Project came out of that idea that I had student interest, which, you know, once you have that, you have to grab onto it. Then two, I had a really practical view of the financial conditions of my students and their families. And it was not a very difficult leap to say, okay, they should learn about this for these reasons. But then in addition, it came to be that Crypto Community Project, specifically for me, is a way for my students to differentiate themselves from their competition in the labor market. Crypto is a young industry. It didn't exist before. It's barely 10 years old. You have a community that's open to a diversity. And you also have something where you have low-income kids who have maybe not been exposed to like the soft skills that they might use to succeed in a professional realm. But now, you know, with this new brand new knowledge, with interest and, and I hate to say grit, but overall just purpose, they can gain a foothold. And I was able to see that, I mean, through Crypto Community Project, seven young girls from that neighborhood got paid internships at different crypto firms and companies, like marketing firms as well. So that's really how like the Bronx came to be. And like Crypto Community Project is, it's not say it was a crusade more or less. It just, it seems like very, again, practical. It's a practical view of how to address something. Like I want to help these kids get jobs. This is them getting a job. I hear that. Um, something I found interesting, right, that you mentioned the basically the bank deserts, right, in that community. And in my research and, and everything that I've read about the theory of banking the bank through crypto, right, it seems that at a glance, right, it seems that financial exclusion, because that's what bank deserts are, is a feature mm -hmm. and not a bug of the current economic system. Referencing back to James Baldwin, like it's expensive to be poor. If you don't have a bank account you and you have a check, you have to go to cashiers like Western Union or something like that. And they take mm -hmm. money away from you every time you get your money back. So I'm just wondering, clearly you were resourceful, use the internet to like make up for the lack of opportunity in that immediate area. And then you created more opportunity and abundance for the kids who participated. Where are some of your students now? The majority of them are still in college, actually. And I still keep in contact with them. We have an alumni telegram group, which, you know, I got them using telegram because all the crypto is on telegram and I share things and they're all looking for internships for the summer. But again, the crypto industry has been so welcoming and helpful. Recently, I, you know, I reached out on Twitter and someone offered to help students to learn about trading. One of my original people who I met in crypto, B.O. Carroll, she works on OTC desk and she spoke to a couple of my students and like opened herself personally to them. Emily Coleman, who previously worked at Shapeshift and Walkman, she also like took some of them under her wing. So the actual access to these level of professionals is more valuable than people understand. If one of my students, let's say, wanted to be in finance, they're not going to be able to rub shoulders with somebody from Goldman Sachs so easily, but they can from Gemini. 
they can from Coinbase because these companies, and in my experience, and I've held two boot camps and the professionals that I've encountered in the industry, again, they believe in the overall ethos of this movement and of the potential and practicality here. So, you know, in my experience, the students have gained so much just by the association. That's amazing. Uh, I want to focus on like, I think your strategy was different than the majority of the industry. And we, you kind of touched on this where we say the generality, oh, we're going to bank the embanked. And, and it's become a little bit of a cliche here, right? Like oftentimes the examples we use is like Venezuela. We always say, oh, Venezuela, which is problematic because it's such a much more complex narrative than enthusiasts care to admit. Or they say migrant workers with no address or struggling families that need to save money out of their mattress, right? Like we make these images up of what it is to bank the unbanked when the reality is that of the total population in the world, there's only about 3 billion people connected to the internet. We're within the next decade or so, we're supposed to come online with another 5 billion. Sometimes I feel that the industry has a hard time grasping what it truly means to bank the unbanked. And I think your approach was you don't wait to bring necessarily people into the industry. You bring the industry to the community. What was your strategy behind that? I can't say that I had a strategy. One thing was just bold luck, to be frank. Um, <laughs> my crypto mentor is Jeremy Epstein, who runs Never Stop Marketing. I had heard him on a podcast, and I wrote to him on Earn.com before Coinbase bought them. And Jeremy was like my entry into crypto. And this really speaks to what crypto is because I demonstrated interest. I demonstrated an ability to communicate effectively through written word. And I showed the willingness to do something. So I was looking for something on the side. I like crypto. I like what Jeremy said. Actually, I, he wrote an ebook about um, the blockchain CMO. And my sister was a CMO. And so I knew that she should know this, but I know she wouldn't read it because she's busy, right? So <laughs> I read it and I was like, well, this guy knows his stuff. And then I wrote to him. You know, and then we started a correspondence and then I met Jeremy a couple of times and that actually was how I came to Bray. We'll touch on that later. But overall, what really happened uh, for a crypto community project to kind of come to fruition. So it happened that one of the students who I was working with, their mentor was Heather Long of the Washington Post. She <laughs> heard from the students that I was doing this and then she approached me and then wrote an article about me giving Zcash to them after the graduation. That went live in, I think, July, a couple of years ago. And, you know, listen, you get the Washington Post to write something about you. Suddenly in an industry, you have a lot of ethos. You have a lot of authority, especially um, when like crypto. And so through Jeremy, I was able to, because I, I chose Zcash for the privacy aspect. So mm. Bitcoin, you know, we all know is not private. And this is before like mixing. This is before any of those other solutions, even lightning. That This is way before that. And so Zcash provided me an availability to do that. And now I didn't do a shielded transaction at the time, but still like I still exposed them to a different cryptocurrency and a privacy focused coin. Heather Long was at the graduation and she oh, wrote wow. about it. And so after that, I got connected through Jeremy to Josh Weihart of the Electric Coin Company. And Josh and I were talking over about a year. And then the project, you know, there were a lot of iterations, a lot of time speaking back and forth. There was a lot of detours that went. And then it finally came in as a boot camp. So none of this would have been possible without the Electric Coin Company and Josh Whitehart um, and Jeremy Epstein, which again talks to what I was trying to do with Crypto Community Project. The network is so small yet robust that, for example, Gemini twice has been to our boot camps and run really, really well done 
seminars on what crypto is, what an exchange is. One of my favorite parts actually of this was I actually start the boot camp teaching about public key cryptography and about wallets and how your wallets are organized from convenient to secure, right? And so the students learn that if your crypto is on an exchange, you do not control your private keys. So we had the boot camp over two days. Gemini came on the second day and they were given their whole spiel. And one of my students raised their hand and go, wait, excuse me. So if, if you have my private keys, if the government says that I can't use crypto, where's my money? <laughs> and they were just, I don't know. But like, that's the level of engagement. Like they understood. These are the right questions to ask. So in terms of what I meant, in terms of go back, just through meeting those people in Gemini, like they are one person away from, you know, the Winklevoss twins or working with Emily Coleman, who, you know, worked at Shapeshift. You know, these are the people of the movement. Again, the movement is so, so small, yet so powerful that you give these students access. They have interest, they have access. Well, at that point, you've just set the stage for them to be successful. I'm a big proponent that obviously equality of outcomes is a ridiculous notion, but equality of opportunity. And I think that's what crypto offers, right? The idea that once you get this information, you have this access, this information, you really can go anywhere with it. It's really amazing that you opened up that avenue for all your students and that as long as the crypto community project exists, it's a boot camp for other people to come in and also go into the fold, so to speak. Let's kind of shift gears into where you are right now. So you did the crypto community project, you had the boot camp, some of your students went through it. They're in great places right now in life, in college, but as well as the way they think about money. And now you're at Brave. What was that transition like? How did you end up there? The same thing, luck, right? And so <laughs> it's, no, and it, look, regardless of what you want to think, one thing I'm a big proponent of is the fact that I think teachers are blamed for a lot of things that are not their fault. I grew up in the suburbs of New York City. The teachers I had were not stellar in comparison to my colleagues when I was working at the Morris Academy for Collaborative Studies. The bottom line is that your you know, home situation and your social circle has a large impact. I think Andrew Yang was speaking to it. I think, you know, 70% of your scholastic success is based upon your, your zip code. In social circle, family view of education, all these things kind of really play into that. And with this, you kind of bust that open and that you're given the access to it. And then it's really on you, right? So at this point in like the world, the information is out there. We've achieved equity of access. Everyone has access, especially now during the quarantine. You have world-class education at your fingertips. Now, at this point, you can't tell a teacher, well, you're not motivating a student well enough. You have to do more. At this point, it's on the student. I mean, what would have happened if Mr. Miyagi had to kind of motivate <laughs> Daniel's son to learn? No, I'm serious. And all jokes aside, I, I make that lightly, but, you know, teachers have been given a bad rap. And they really have. And these students, you know, for the most part, Maybe some of it has to do with the individual and there are motivated students who I had who were able to take advantage, others not. And so with this, zip code doesn't matter in crypto. It's the internet. If you're interested in it, if you can talk about it, if you can be there and do the effort, you know, the doors will open. And so how I became the brave was through Jeremy Epstein. I met someone named um, Donnie DeVorn and I actually ran a uh, bi-weekly newsletter on crypto and on blockchain and marketing on the intersection. And I did that for about a year and a half. I worked very closely with Donnie. And uh, Donnie called me up one day and he, um, he asked me, hey, what do you think of Brave? And I literally, so I actually wrote a freelance article on Brave a year and a half ago for Toshi Times. 
which is Ivan on text publication. And I loved Brave from like the minute, like it hit me. Like I read their white paper. It was like the first white paper I had read. My father was in marketing. My sister was in marketing and advertising. So something spoke to me there. So it turned out that Donnie was speaking to me and I went through this whole spiel. It was like 45 minutes. And he goes, okay, I'm going to take the job there as head of sales. Do you want to work for me? (laughs) And so I was like, yes. And here I am. Right. And so I guess I would be the first example of crypto community project bringing somebody into the crypto industry. And I'm sure you won't be the last of it. So now you're at Brave. I know you're in sales, but tell me a little bit about your focus there, right? As well as I think we talked about earlier on when we were talking about the panel and what it would look like. You mentioned this idea that students can use Brave Bat to pay for Netflix to basically be resourceful while still using the internet and not have to have like, you know, an extra expense for their parents. Well, yeah, I mean, look, when it comes down to it, a lot of the things that we go kind of back is about exploitation, right? We kind of have this point of view about like the exploitation of labor and how maybe one set of labor isn't worth as much as another. And so that's where poverty comes in. But overall, what Brave has done is utilize kind of the peer-to-peer framework that blockchain provides to create a direct relationship between advertisers, publishers, content creators, and users. You know, and again, I learned all of this from Brave, right? I learned all this by reading their white paper and working with Jeremy and Donnie. This plethora of middlemen, these third parties, which Mm -hmm. is like lexicon of crypto, the third parties that are extracting value from our attention. And Brave is a privacy by default browser that will award users for their attention. And so now suddenly we have a resource, which is our attention that all of us have that we can now tap. So using that as their medium of exchange, what Brave does is really allow us to earn, I mean, look, you're not going to make millions of dollars with that every month. It's just not going to happen. You know, if you use Brave on your cell phone, you know, not use any other app, don't use Twitter, don't use Facebook, don't use Instagram, you know, you'll save almost 20% of your data plan because all of those invisible ads and trackers that are exploiting your attention and taking that monetary value from themselves, you're actually paying for that. So what Brave does is using the browser and a blind token model to kind of report any kind of ad events anonymously, give users the value of that attention. Now, through a recent partnership with Tap Network, you can, after you verify your wallet with a partner uphold, purchase gift cards and pay Spotify or Netflix. And again, this is, again, a lower expense. You earned it from your attention. I love the ethos of Brave. It revolves around two things, consent and privacy. You can use Brave without ads. You opt in. And you can use it while still enjoying privacy. And if you want to go uber private, you can, you know, open up a new tab with Tor, which is built in. So that's how like Brave has kind of used this model. And if you look at what the token does is really give a way for people to kind of adopt crypto, understand how it works, and then become the gateway to adoption. Right on. Um, I know that a bit of your focus in that role is in Latin America. And we talked about banking the unbanked. There's two ways of thinking of it, right? A macro and a micro view. In a micro view, we're thinking about the United States and our own backyards. In a macro view, we're thinking about the rest of the world. So why Latin America right now? Like, I know you, you referenced your experience in Costa Rica when you were trying to get married. Was that just something that you remembered? You're like, there's a big opportunity here? Well, I mean, I'm Puerto Rican. So <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I'll work in sub-Saharan Africa. But I obviously have a heritage and a cultural affinity for Latin America. I do speak Spanish. 
I actually learned Spanish while I was older. Um, I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. So that's one thing that happened later in my life. But again, it's like effort. You know, like my household is in Spanish. My wife is from Costa Rica. She moved to the United States with me, didn't speak English. My life is in Spanish right now. But, you know, if you really think about the opportunity here that is absent really, like, let's say the EU or Asia or even Sub-Saharan Africa, is that with Latin America, you have a single linguistic block. You know, it's not a homogeneous culture, although people want to assume that. But there is a large block of Spanish that is spoken from the Rio Grande down to Patagonia. And you also have another shared experience of corrupt governments and ineptitude in terms of economic <laughs> policy. So crypto just speaks to that. And so the reason why us, well, we're trying to expand our user base in Latin America. And then I also am the original lead for sales of advertising. Again, we're not anti-ad. We're just anti-ads that take your privacy. If you can earn basic attention token with your attention in the United States or in, let's say, in the developed world, it's different if you can do so. Imagine if you can use Bat on your phone and you were using like an Android phone and you're in El Salvador and like you're using Brave and you're earning Bat and you're able to, let's say, pay for more minutes on your cell phone using Bat. These are things that are tangible benefits to people's lives while also privacy. Again, and we all know that there is a history of exploitation between Latin America and let's say the United States and Europe. Google represents just a new kind of version of that, right? Yeah. They're exploiting the resource of our attention. For example, so in Brave, we have two wallets built in right now on desktop. There's a Brave Rewards wallet, which kind of keeps your bat that you earn for viewing ads. And through our partner Uphold, you can transfer that out or change it for fiat. But we also have a crypto wallet, which is a MetaMask fork that's built into the browser for ERC20 tokens or any Ethereum-based token, which is coming soon to mobile. And if you think about that and then couple that with, let's say, stable coins and DeFi, well, then suddenly you have a place where people can store their wealth securely and earn interest. And forget about Venezuela, Argentina, Colombia, Mexico. You tell me where I can get a better rate on my savings in the United States. But the bottom line here is that with crypto and Brave, you have that ease of adoption. And so where you know, I'm a big fan of like other apps or other wallet apps or like DeFi apps, like the Argent or Dharma. What Brave presents is a multifaceted approach on adoption. And that has a tangible benefit for their users that does more than just saying, hey, use this. You can access the web privately. You can earn based on your attention and, you know, not be subject to the current regime of surveillance capitalism. And I think more and more people are becoming aware of that. You know, we grew by a million users last month. And I don't think that's an accident. There's a lot more room to grow to. No, that's very true. And congratulations on your million users. I think I saw the announcement for that. I was uh, one of your earlier users uh, before you guys had like Chromium involved and everything. So I, I'm a fan. I was a fan of the project. I believed in it like earlier on. So thanks for your work there. Thanks to developers. I didn't develop it. I, I, I sell the ads. <laughs> but you sell it. That helps. <laughs> I sell the ads. No. And again, you mentioned like the Chromium fork made a huge difference, right? Like people don't understand that they can use Brave right now, just like Chrome and yeah. use 99% of the extensions. And, you know, just why not? I, I haven't used any other browser. Everything works. Right. Yeah. Especially like, like I said, after that upgrade, it was like, oh, why am I ever going to go back? I can do everything I need to do in, in here and it's private. So Latin America, like what has been the response so far, right? Like, are, are people really receptive of the spiel you just gave me? Like, do they understand it? And then also like students there, right? Like the, the, the people coming of age in this new 
era of crypto economics, are they that class of people that are going to be the ones that are really adopting it and bring it into the mainstream in Latin America? Well, I mean, if one thing Latin Americans understand is exploitation, so it's, it's not a hard sell. And let's not go all big kind of, you know, overall meta narrative and story. Look, you want to watch YouTube without ads? Use Brave. That's it. You want to earn for your attention? Perfect. Use Brave. But save on your data plan. Use Brave. And so are they receptive to it? Yes. The app itself is available in Spanish, obviously, and, and Portuguese. Brazil is a large market for us, as well as Mexico. The website itself is being translated into Spanish right now. It's hard because obviously, if, if you're in crypto, based on the success of our token sale, we are very known in the crypto industry. And you know, if crypto is very small in New York, in Latin America, it's even smaller. So the sure. people I talk to, like, we love Brave, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and they, you know, they're very open to it. But in terms of wider adoption from the general populace. I'm not sure yet, but I'm confident that once they do hear that, because again, it makes sense. And if they're able to use crypto, they're able to use a crypto wallet and they're able to earn for their attention, they're going to do it, especially younger people. Right on. Seeing your journey from teacher to enthusiast advocate to now being in the industry, do you have like a sort of like a call to action, like in a way that what are something that companies right now in the industry can do to bring this kind of awareness to more communities that I shouldn't only be reaching out to the tech-focused people, right? Like we need the, the English majors, we need the philosophers, we need every segment of our society to really understand what this movement is about. What is something that as an industry we can do to make it as inclusive as possible? Pie in the sky? Yeah. Crypto stimulus. How many... <laughs> No, I'm being 100% serious. You want a larger market, you want demand, give Bitcoin to people, right? How many Bitcoin whales out there that have the foresight and a lot of luck to gain more than, let's say, 10 Bitcoins? Rain the Bronx with sats. Get people using a wallet. Through that investment, you create a market. Through that market, you're going to create demand. And through that demand, you're going to raise the price. So as an industry, what they need to understand, put crypto in the hands. And that's what we did in Crypto Community Project. I can teach a lesson on wallets, but it's different if I can transfer crypto to you on a wallet because you're not paying attention until you have to. So you want to do something as an industry? Give crypto to people. Spread the love. And it doesn't have to be like an enormous amount of money, but I would love for, let's say, a Bitcoin whale to adopt an apartment complex. You know, think about what Facebook is doing. In, uh, they made a recent purchase. To get free internet in India, why are they doing that? Is it the goodness of their hearts? Definitely no, not. <laughs> it's not. They're trying to get that data, that sweet, sweet data. They're understanding that this investment will return in spades. Crypto needs to do the same thing. You want to bank the unbanked? Give them crypto. Bank them. Done. You have the money. It's not like you don't. You're a crypto billionaire? Give a couple of hundred million sats around and have people sit on it. You have Ethereum? Give out die. Have them earn interest, seed your own economy. And that's what it would be. Like, that's my ask. And, you know, will it happen? I don't know. Just being a teacher, you realize that the only thing that brings success is the ability to fail while being supported. And a number of students in lower income communities do not have that because of lack of economic support, regardless of the reasons why. So if crypto wants to grow and wants to like live up to their standards and their overall laurels and kind of be like, okay, look, we want to bank the unbanked, do it. You have it. 
You have magical internet money that fell from the sky. You're now a billionaire. Give it out. Make a foundation. Give it to people. If we really believe this stuff is worthwhile, we put it in people's hands and then let's use the libertarian front and let the market work its magic because it will. So that, that would be my call to action for everybody. Carlos, thanks so much for your time. I hope that people have been listening, take your call to action seriously and that the big titans of the industry give back because I think, like you said, the ethos of this community is really to grant access. It's to change the dynamics of our current paradigm and bring us into a new world where we can all eat, so to speak. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.